book of Malachi, chapter 3. If you've hit Matthew, turn left. You're one book too far. The state of indifference of an individual before God is a very difficult place to be within. It is a common occurrence amongst those who follow and believe in God. Circumstances of life can cause us to fall into this state of indifference before Him. That's why we've entitled the series through the book of Malachi, Indifference, for that is exactly what has occurred here in the hearts and the minds of the people of the nation of Israel. They have fallen into a state of indifference before God. That indifference was due to the fact that difficult times had come upon them. Though they have been released for the, from the Babylonian captivity and they have resettled the land of Israel, they have rebuilt the temple, they have rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem, they are now dwelling in the walls of, uh, of Jerusalem, things still haven't gone as they have expected them to go. The Lord had not settled on the temple again as he did in the temple of Solomon. When the Shekinah of glory filled the temple after the temple was constructed, indicating the presence of God amongst his people. And though they had rebuilt the temple, the temple itself was not aesthetically pleasing as the one that Solomon had created in all of his wealth. And the people were discouraged, and they felt that that was one of the reasons that God's presence didn't appear to be with them. But as time went on, things became even more difficult. They had agricultural difficulties. The crops were not yielding the harvest that they had once enjoyed. They had continuous difficulties with their neighbors, the surrounding cities and the surrounding nations around them. They were a constant agitation to the nation of Israel. The people themselves had grown tired Though they were going through the rituals of worshiping God, they had no real heart for God. And this indifference led them first and foremost to uh, believe that God no longer loved them. And then it led to them resenting his name, meaning they had no further respect or they did not reverence or honor God in the manner in which they should. And that then led to sin. And that sin was manifested in the manner in which they dealt with their wives, specifically those Jewish men who divorced their Jewish wives and then went and they married uh, wives of the surrounding Gentile nations, which they were forbid to do. And they did so for the purpose of expanding their wealth and their prosperity and their places of prominence and position. And God starts to address this indifference. And he says to them, oh, how I have loved you. And they respond, how have you loved us? In what way have you loved us? We don't seem to see that whatsoever. And then he said to them, oh, how you have despised my name. And they, of course, once again, they respond by saying, oh, in what way have we resented your name? In what way have we disrespected you? 
In what way have we walked away from you? And then he went on to say, Then you have turned away and covered the altar with tears and weeping, groaning because no longer he no longer regards your offerings or accept them. And he, they said, but why don't you accept our offerings and our prayers any longer? And now we find that they have wearied the Lord with their words. And not understanding how they have done so, they now respond to him in the same fashion. Well, how have we wearied you with our words? And he tells them, because you believe that God sees those who are evil as if they were good. Indifference is a problem. It is the reason why we ventured into this book as a church together because over a long period of time, as you go through certain troubles and trials and tribulations in life, it is easy to slip into that position of indifference before God and it's a very slippery slope to say the least. It will take you places you do not want to go. And it often is due to the misunderstanding of God, his nature, his character, and his work within us, because we look at our circumstances to determine our right standing with God. And when our circumstances go south, we believe our relationship with God goes south. But God said, that's not the basis of the relationship that I have with you. The basis of the relationship that I have with you is, the, is my son, Jesus Christ. And it's always going north with him. But often we slip into that same mindset that the children of Israel did. And we begin to question God and we begin to doubt God's goodness and doubt his character. And then we begin to drift off into sin once again because we don't longer see that it's really relevant any longer. And that's what we're going to discover this morning as we begin now in verse 17 of chapter 2 to verse 5 of chapter 3. Let's read the entire text together. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be swift 
I'm sorry, I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress and hire workers uh, in their wages, and widows and fatherless, and against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts." They have come to exasperate the Lord. Not physically, but they're to the point now where he's tired of listening to their whining, complaining, and graveling, and so forth. And they don't see their sin once again. Their indifference has blinded them to their own personal sin before God. They feel that they are right before him simply because they are a child uh, of Abraham there in the nation of Israel, a Jewish individual They don't understand how they have wearied the Lord with their words. Here the indifference has has set into the depth in which they now are questioning the very character of God by believing that He endorses evil and delights in it. And the weariness of him is found by saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. The people were confused because the covenant in which they were under, the the agreement they have with God, the understanding that they have with God was the fact that God would prosper the nation of Israel as long as the nation of Israel would be obedient to him. And he would uh, bring about hardship and curses upon them if they were disobedient to him. However, though, they began to apply those national promises individually. And therefore, when they saw someone living in an evil stance, they saw someone living uh, apart from God, worshiping other gods and so forth, and yet still physically prospering here in this world, they looked at it and determined that God in some way must be pleased with them, for they are prospering here in this world, and that has to be an indication that God is for them. And we see this in the New Testament, believe it or not. When the rich young ruler came to Jesus asking for direction on what he must do to be saved, and Jesus then gives him a little litmus test of some Ten Commandments that he then believed that he had kept since his childhood, Jesus then went on to say, now go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor and come and follow after me. But he could not do so because his riches were so great. But as a result, the disciples were confused by it. And their attitude was, well, if he can't inherit the kingdom of God, if he's not in favor with God, then who therefore can be? And their misunderstanding of the situation was due to the fact that they believed that because he was prospering financially and that he had material wealth and so forth and he was an individual of you know, prominence within the society, that God had to have favor upon him. And this has been a problem throughout the entire Old Testament. But in their accusation of 
God's character, in their maligning of God's character, in their misunderstanding of the circumstances, they ask a question. It is the title of my message this morning. The question there is found in verse 17. As they go on to say, or by asking, where is the God of justice? Throughout the Old Testament, the coming of the Messiah was an anticipated event that they all looked forward to. Now, at this point in the history of the nation of Israel, the profile of that Messiah was very convoluted, to say the least, greatly distorted by uh, the uh, conjecture and speculation of the religious leaders and so forth. But that anticipated arrival had always been a focal point and a a desire of the nation of Israel. And since they see the wicked prospering, they then ask the question, where is the God of justice? When will he arrive? When will he come? For Haggai, Zechariah, Amos, etc. had all promised the coming of one who is going to bring complete justice to this world. And so they are not only maligning God's character, but they are also challenging him and doubting him and bringing about the accusation that he has not or will not fulfill one of the promises in which he has made to them. Oh, what a situation. And we really see how the indifference that they have been swallowed up within has blinded them to the reality around them. We can often find ourselves in positions where we begin to challenge the nature of God, the the character of God, we begin to doubt God, and it's simply due to the fact that we have allowed our circumstances to drown us and to remove us from a right position, a right perspective concerning God. Oh, they wanted this God of justice. They wanted the Messiah to come to deal with those evil people over there that seemed to be prospering. And they were struggling. Uh, They wanted him to come to, again, bring uh, Israel to the zenith of their existence once again and to bless them for being children of Abraham, being those of the uh, lineage of Jacob and so forth, and that God would therefore judge and deal harshly with the rest of the world around them. So where is this God of justice that we have been looking for and waiting for for so long? In fact, Jeremiah, when he was contemplating this, listen to these words. Jeremiah chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. Yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper, he asks? And why do all who are treacherous thrive? You planted them, and they've taken root, and they grow and produce fruit, and you are near in their mouth and far from their heart. But you, O Lord, know me. You see me and test my heart towards you. 
Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for the day of slaughter. How long will the land mourn and the grass of every field wither? For the evil of those who dwell in it, the beasts and the birds are swept away because they say, he will not see our latter end. Meaning, we're going to get away with it. That God's not going to hold us accountable. And we can keep doing what we are doing day in and day out without any type of repercussion whatsoever. I am amazed to discover that in our culture today, and maybe I shouldn't be, but amongst those who claim to be Christians, born-again Christians, the percentage of those individuals who believe that sin is no longer a concern to God is rising exponentially. That God doesn't really care about sin. Oh, really? He cared so much about it that he came and endured under the weight of pressure by his own creation. He subjected himself to his creation and was treated in the manner in which he was. He was ridiculed, he was mocked, he was beaten, he was whipped, he was crucified to a cross to deal with the issue of sin. How serious then is sin to God? If that is the nature in which he had to handle it, if that is the methodology in which he needed to rectify it, then how important or how concerning is sin to God? It's very concerning. The problem is, is that it's not an issue of it's not no longer concerning to God. The issue is it's no longer a concern to us. We don't have that same conscience anymore concerning the depravity of sin and how gross it is before the Lord. As our society continues to justify all actions and deem them acceptable, Christians so often as an individual in a tub of water, as the water is getting hotter and harder, the individual doesn't feel it until it's too late. We've grown desensitized to the seriousness of sin. And they believe that God wasn't concerned with sin whatsoever. But this leads to a further conclusion that's even more concerning to me than the first. Today, some who see evil and those who are evil prospering and and gaining uh, fame, fortune, attention, and so forth, and all of this that the world has to offer, and doing so by corrupt means in many ways, that God in some way is condoning their action. I've had Christians tell me when they are struggling with sin, listen, I've been struggling with this sin for so long, I don't think God even cares about it, and maybe he even approves of it. That is not the case. What they are interpreting as his approval of their sin is in actuality his long-suffering towards them. His grace and His mercy giving them ample opportunity to repent of their sins and to get right with Him. His love for them. His desire that they would desire all that He has for them. 
And so this place of indifference can move us into these conclusions. And it's the same conclusion that those who were scoffing against the return of the Lord in 2 Peter chapter 3 also rendered. Well, everything has been like it has been from the beginning. Things haven't changed. They're just getting worse. Things continue on and God yet not has fulfilled his, his return. Why should we then live in the urgency of Christ's return? Why should we think that he is going to come back and to judge when it's been 2,000 years removed since his first coming? Again, then Peter replies, it's the, for the fact that he desires that all would come to repentance. He desires in long-suffering and in his patience that supersedes my understanding. But let us understand that Christian 5.10 tells us what they have done in this battle. There is a reckoning. There is an accountability. The God of justice is coming. He has come once and he is coming again. As one theologian put it, he said it this way, here come the judge, here come the judge, here come the judge. But they misunderstood his long-suffering, his patience, his grace, his mercy. And blinded to their own sin, they, in their arrogance, raised up this question, where is the God of justice? And we do the same thing. I watch the news often, and I'm so... I'm so angered by it, I'll be honest with you, with some of the tragedies that I see and some of the horrific things that I see. And then I always say, oh, can it get any worse? And guess what? I watch the news the next day and it gets worse, right? Something else has happened and you're just like, how could that possibly ever occur? Oh God, it's just time for you to come back and to deal with it all. Now, that's easy for me to say because I'm in Christ. I'm not on the other side of the coin any longer. And I quickly realize that I have been saved by grace, and if it weren't for the grace of God, I'd be in the same position that all of them are in currently. And so now I begin to pray for them. I begin to ask God to work in them for His glory. But the children of Israel had lost that perspective. For they were the chosen ones of God and and their actions had gone unchecked for so long that they felt that maybe God was even condoning their actions. And they were more than willing for God to deal with everyone else around them, but they were not prepared for God dealing with them. And so to answer their question, where is the God of justice The Lord in the first person replies, which interesting, by the way, side note, the Lord speaking in the first person is most prevalent in the book of Malachi compared to all the prophets of the Old Testament. He wants to make sure they didn't knowing that he's the one that's saying it. I don't want there to be any ambiguity. It's me who's speaking, God is saying here. Listen to what he says. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before who? Me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. One is coming. 
my messenger. Play on words. Malachi means my messenger, but this is not referring to Malachi here. Though I believe a parallel truth can be made that Malachi was preparing the way all was writing, the Bible now prophesies that there will be one sent before the coming one, the God of justice. There will be one who precedes him, who will make the way straight before him. And as Matthew tells us very quickly, that one is none other than John the Baptist. One crying out in the wilderness, making straight the path of the Lord. He is a forerunner to Jesus Christ, one who would come before the presence of royalty. His mission and responsibility was to clear the way, literally to clear the way. Knowing the road that the king would come in on, his job was to take stones and to remove them from the road to make sure that the entrance of the king was undeterred by any kind of roadblock, anything that would keep him from arriving in his city accordingly. It was John the Baptist who came on the scene and began to call the nation of Israel back to repentance. That was the manner in which he prepared them for the coming Messiah. One who was going to come suddenly. For there are two here mentioned. One, be the messenger who prepared the way before me, he says. And the Lord. And the word is Adonai there. Speaking of Jesus, whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. On Wednesday nights, we're going through the Gospel of Mark together, and we have just come into the uh, final week of the life of Jesus Christ, and he has entered in uh, to Jerusalem, uh, to the praises, and to the recipients crying out, Hosanna, which means, Lord, save now. And his first stop in the temple was not that of a grand reception, but that of a grand remodeling as he came into the court of the Gentiles and discovered that they had been turned into a marketplace where individuals were not only acting corruptly, but individuals who came to worship the Lord were being taken advantage of in the midst of the court itself. Malachi says that he was come to his temple. He will be the messenger of the new covenant of grace that would supersede the covenant of Moses in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Oh, he's coming all right. And this would be the last of the Old Testament prophets until John the Baptist came and rose to that place of prominence as he ushered in and welcomed in the coming Messiah. This is the promise of that first coming, being revealed to his people. Oh, he is coming. Be assured of that, he is coming. That's Malachi's purpose here, by allowing the, not allowing, but God speaking in the first voice through Malachi, he is giving them the assurance, oh, he's coming. Now, here's the question. What's going to happen after he comes? That's what they were not prepared for. 
That's what they were not ready to hear or to receive. They had a preconceived idea that the justice in which he would render would be directed towards their enemies, but not themselves. They were ready to concede and to allow him to come, but they weren't prepared for what he was about to do next. Verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Wait a minute. He's dealing with them. He's coming to judge them first and foremost before he turns his attention to the world. And that's the way God needs to work. He has to work in us first before he can then turn to the world and judge them. The judgment of, the, of God starts in the house of God, the Bible says. But here we have another example of the Old Testament prophets mixing the first and second coming in one event. This was common throughout the Old Testament. This is what gave way and led to great misunderstandings concerning Jesus Christ. For when Jesus Christ came in the manner of humility in his first coming, the religious leaders were taken back by that because it appeared to contradict everything that it said about a conquering hero. There were many passages in Isaiah and others that stated that Jesus would have to come as a suffering servant, in humility, born in Bethlehem, riding in on the back of a donkey. But they couldn't reconcile that. They couldn't harmonize that with those passages that said he was going to come as a conquering hero. It seemed to logically contradict one another, so there had to be a problem somewhere. So what they did is they began to say those issues of suffering either has to do with the prophet himself or the nation of Israel or the Jewish people or possibly there was a faction within the Jewish hierarchy that believed that there was going to be two messiahs, one suffering, one coming in victory. And since the, victor, the one coming in victory was so much more uh, pleasing to them, that's the one that they highlighted and focused upon. They wanted him to come as the God of justice. They wanted him to come and to render justice on this earth. But God had a much different idea because he knew that they were not in need of justice. They were in need of a justifier. They needed to be justified, made right before God. And so in his first coming, he became the God who justifies. In his second coming, he will be the God who comes in justice. When Jesus came to the temple, if you turn with me to Isaiah 61, this is a, an example of what we had just stated. Isaiah 61. 
If you remember when Jesus came to the temple, he was given the scrolls in which to read and he began to read from them and then make a astonishing declaration after finishing a portion of the text. And he began reading out of the book of Hosea or the scroll of Isaiah, I should say at that time. And he began reading and saying, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He then shut the scroll and then proceeded to say, In your hearing, this is now been fulfilled. And of course, that was a huge issue for those around him because they had not recognized him as the Messiah. But as you know here, by looking at your text in chapter 61 of Isaiah, that's only the beginning of the prophecy. The prophecy continues and says, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them beautiful headdresses instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. That is still yet to come in his second coming. And so many of the mistakes that people make, and most importantly, the Jewish leaders, were the confusion that they had between the first and the second coming of Jesus Christ. As we enter the month where the whole world remembers the first coming of Jesus Christ, we as Christians look forward to the second coming of Jesus Christ. But remember, it is not a donkey that he is riding upon in his second coming. It is a white horse which represents that he's coming for the purpose of conquering, coming for the purpose of pure justice, to judge the world for the sin within it. But in his first coming, he became the justifier, one who could justify people before God and make them right before him so that they may escape the judgment that is still yet to come. And that process is found here as he is called a refiner's fire. Metallurgy, when purifying gold and silver in that culture, they would heat it up to allow the dross to rise to the top of the molten uh, metal and then they would scrape it off. They would continue doing this until they saw a perfect reflection of their face within the, the melting pot. And therefore, they would know at that point that the gold or silver is a perfect consistence. It's at its purest form. And God says, I'm going to work in you. When you receive Christ and you are born again, the Spirit of God is resurrected within you and the Holy Spirit resides within you and begins to work on the inside, changing you from the inside out to conform you in, back into that image of Jesus Christ, to allow you to capture the image that was destroyed and distorted and defiled by sin. 
and death. But then it goes on to say then he'll take fuller soap to you. I didn't know if, when I originally read this if fuller was a brand back then, you know. We've got Tide and we've got All and Cheer and, you know, Life Boy if you're into the Christmas story. That's one of the worst ones and so forth. But fuller soap was a type of soap that was used specifically for washing the garments of the Levitical priests to make sure that they were not defiled in any way, shape, or form. And it showed me that not only will God change you from the inside, but changing you from the inside will result in changed action on the outside. It'll show that God has demonstrated that he, you are a new creation in Jesus Christ and you therefore now can live as he has called you to live in the power of the Spirit and the working of the Word. In a process the New Testament calls sanctification. And then he says to these priests in whom he is speaking to directly, it is at that time then your offerings will be acceptable unto God for he had chastised them for bringing polluted offerings because their hearts were not right before him. He says, it is the heart that I'm going to take care of. I'm going to cleanse you from the inside out, therefore becoming our justification before God. And then the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem, verse 4, will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and in former years. Where is the God of justice? Verse 5. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. And I will be a swift witness against sorcerers. When the Jewish people came out of Babylon, they brought back practices ideologies from Babylon that they integrated into their um, relationship with God. And Jesus, God says, I'm going to judge that. Against adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress hired workers in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. It is interesting to me that he is looking undoubtedly into the hearts of the priests. And he is saying these things specifically because they are sinning in this way before him and are not acknowledging it before him. You have issues, he is saying, and I see those issues. All things are open and naked unto God. I don't know why we think we are hiding anything before him. God sees what we do in our most private places and our most private times and knows all the sins of our heart. He has given us a way to deal with those sins. If we will confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But let us not think that we're getting away with anything by trying to hide something from God. I believe here He is looking into their hearts. He is seeing the problems there within and he's saying the reason that things have not returned to the status in which you desire is because sin reigns in your heart rather than your desire to worship me. And he goes through all of these. Interesting also to note that how many of these issues did Jesus address in his earthly ministry and that was the beginning of all things. The judgment of God upon this earth started with the first coming of Jesus Christ. When the Holy Spirit came upon the church in Acts chapter 2, 
Peter clearly tells us that this was the beginning of the last days. So I can assuredly tell you that we are 2,000 years closer to the return of Jesus Christ than we've ever been before. And he is coming as a God of justice, as a God of judgment. But first he came as a God of justification. He wanted to give people the manner in which to escape the judgment of God. For the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked, under the wrath of God. But at that moment that Jesus Christ died on the cross, the Bible tells us that the wrath of God was poured upon his shoulders for all the sins of the world. And in that, he experienced the wrath of God in three different ways. Number one, there was darkness at that moment, the Bible says. That darkness that had once been a bright and shining light now had become darkness, which then led to separation as as Jesus said as he hung there from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then it led to death, number three. That is the judgment, the wrath of God. An eternity in darkness, separated from God, experiencing eternal death. But then there's Jesus. And if you will believe in Jesus, if you will give your heart and your life to him, he will give you his perfect life in return for your sin-defiled life. And he will justify you before God, making you as if you had never sinned ever before God the Father. And now practically, we're still catching up to that, right? We're, we're not perfect by any means, by any way. But before God the Father, as the Father sees us through Christ, it appears to the Father because of the work of Jesus Christ that we have never sinned in our lives. I don't understand that, but I am surely thankful for it. And even if I sin now as an individual, the door is open for me to confess my sin, to return to him, and to be cleansed of all unrighteousness. The promise we have in him. But they needed a justifier before they needed the God of justice. And I'd like to close before we take communion this morning by taking you to Romans chapter 3 as we read this final portion of Scripture Starting in verse 21 of chapter 3, understanding exactly what Jesus has done for us. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a, the propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. 
and it was shown his righteousness at this present time so that he might be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Christ settled it all. So before we call out for God's judgment, let us first be uh, secure in our understanding that this God of justice has justified us in Christ first and foremost. Because it is easy for us as the children of Israel to cry out when we see all the injustice going on in the world and it's replete. We don't have to make a case for it. Where is the God of justice? But just remember that when the God of justice comes, he's going to deal with it. And it's not going to be this piecemealing. It's not going to be haphazardly. It's going to be abrupt. It's going to be decisive. It's going to be once and for all, the matter is settled. And this is why God is giving us this time of grace that you and I can take this incredible message to everyone and let them know that the manner in which God showed his love for you is that he gave his only begotten son that whomsoever believes in him shall not die but have everlasting life.